Season 3, Episode 3, A Cast and Blast Florida Conversations. This week we have a very special guest. Mary Nell Armstrong from Southern Fire Exchange is here. And we're going to be talking all about prescribed fire, fire science, fire ecology. Maybe those are all the same things. I don't know. We're about to find out. But Mary Nell works for Southern Fire Exchange, which is a fire science exchange program. Uh, they represent kind of the southeast and they have a great podcast called Friends of Fire. You should check that out. Absolutely. If you want to learn more, do a deeper dive on fire. They got several episodes out there, including some with some folks we've interviewed right here on the conversation show, uh, Dr. Michael Chamberlain uh, about wild turkeys and Jay Cantrell from South Carolina on kind of their wildlife management and how fire impacts that. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy uh, this conversation we have with Mary Nell. I know I had a blast recording it. So Mary Nell Armstrong coming at you right now. Mary Nell, how are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. The first question is always the same. It is, who is Mary Nell Armstrong? I mean, it's not the same first question for every person. It's their name there, but you, you get the gist. <laughs> I do. I was born and raised in Georgia, just north of Atlanta. Went to Eckerd College for my undergraduate, majored in environmental studies, I interned at Boyd Hill Nature Preserve there, where I was first introduced to prescribed fire, and I immediately fell in love with it. There's a lot that I love about prescribed fire, but I think initially what drew me to it was the idea that you, you get to light things on fire, and it's for the greater good. It's for the good of the ecosystem, for the plants and the animals, and also for humans. And then from there, I wanted to learn about fire in different states, different ecosystems, different areas. So I've burned with the Nature Conservancy in Georgia, Wildland Restoration International in Sarasota, Florida, uh, went back to Southeast Georgia to work for the Department of Natural Resources, then went to Austin, Texas, worked wildfire mitigation and prescribed fire, back to Southeast Georgia with the Department of Natural Resources, and then spent a season working wildfire suppression up in Helena, Montana. I wanted to try that at least once. So I worked on an initial attack engine crew. And I also got to do a role with Hell Attack, which was a lot of fun. So I got a lot of training with Hell Attack in Kalispell, Montana. And after that season, I began working on my master's program at the University of Florida down here in Gainesville, where I live now studying fire ecology, specifically the effect that season of burn has on the reproduction on understory plants. And then I also started working for Southern Fire Exchange in around November of 2019. And I love working for them. I love being the outreach specialist and communicating science to practitioners and researchers. Aside from my professional life, I, I love running, biking, hiking, camping. I try to go on an adventure, on some kind of adventure, just about every two weeks, you know, go camping or something, go somewhere new. And whenever I'm hiking, camping, adventuring, it's all, always the same kind of stuff. Um, identifying birds, listening to bird songs, um, identifying plants, lichens. I just love getting outside and, and being a kid and just feeling like a kid, you know, picking apart pine cones and and blowing bubbles into a campfire. If you've never tried that, you, ha you have to try blowing bubbles into a campfire. The convective, the convective heat shoots the bubbles up into the sky and they mix with the stars. It's, it's just gorgeous. 
that's that's definitely the first time we've had someone uh, offer blowing bubbles into a campfire as a hobby. So that's that will put you in the unique category. Um, biking, running, are you like a distance person? Or are you just like a hobbyist? Or like, do you do marathons? Do you do 5Ks? Do you just run because it's fun to do? Which is insane. I like distance. Okay. I think the first two miles are the worst. So people who like run for two or three miles and they're like, oh, I hate running. I'm like, I would hate that too. Okay. Uh, I've done a marathon. I've done a couple of half marathons. I like doing distance. I think five miles is a, about as low as I want to go because the first two are just so terrible. After that, you kind of get in the zone and you cruise. Uh, before we get into talking about fire and fire and more fire, I want to ask a couple of questions. First off, um, you don't hunt or fish, right? You're not a consumptive user by our definition. Like you, you enjoy the outdoors though. You love to camp. You love to hike. You love to ride, but you're not a hunter or fisherman. No, I tried fishing uh it it didn't work well for me I did not care for it (laughs) I actually started my career path as a getting into marine biology and quickly learned that to study marine biology you have to mess with animals and critters and things and they didn't like being messed with (laughs) and I didn't like them not liking being messed with so the first time I caught a fish uh it did not like what was happening and I did not like that it didn't like what was happening so I haven't really tried since. It's just not for me. I think it's incredibly important. Needs to be done. It's a you know, it's a part of managing ecosystems and habitats. But I'm I'm not going to be the one to do it. So so let's talk about this. Um, obviously, you're a little bit of a health nut in that you're a biker, runner, bubble blowing, campfire enthusiast. <laughs> but um, where do you land on favorite snack? We usually ask if you're on a hunting trip or fishing trip or whatever. But say you're out on the boat, kayaking, paddleboarding, hiking, bike riding. What, what's your go-to snack? This is important. People need to know this. Yeah, I'll give you my go-to fireline snack. Okay. And this is uh, not something I do often, but this is my favorite. This is my treat is getting um, peppered beef jerky Okay. and brownie muddy buddies. Okay. Like, like puppy chow. Yeah. I, having those two things on a fire line, that is a, a good fire day. You don't mix them. No, but you can eat one and then the other. And like, that's the best part. It's like a cleansing palate. So like each bite is a brand new bite. <laughs> okay. Emily's going to have a field day with this because those are two of her favorite things in the world. The oh, muddy great. buddies. And so yeah, you've just created a monster with my wife. Uh, do you have strong feelings about pineapple on a pizza? This question has been asked to every interview you, we've ever done. Yeah, at the risk of being hung up on, <laughs> I do like pineapple on pizza. God, this is terrible. <laughs> I, I only like it, only pineapple on pizza. I don't even really like the Canadian uh, Bacon. ham with yeah. pineapple. And, you know, I, I like my food separate. I like just pineapple on pizza if I'm going to eat pineapple on pizza. Otherwise, it's a no-go. Wow. that's That may be the first time we've had that take. And this is a new question I added this year. Um do you have a favorite little Debbie snack? Are those zebra brownies? Are those like a little Debbie? Kind yes. Of thing? The zebra cakes. I those. Uh-huh. Okay. That's a terrible answer, but it's fair. The correct answer is either oatmeal pies or fudge rounds, but we'll let you, oh. we'll let you slide. Oatmeal pies are amazing. Right. <laughs> okay. So let's talk. Obviously we have someone here that is passionate about burning stuff. What is it that attracted you to fire? Have you always been into fire? Did you grow? I mean, it's kind of primal, right? Can you, can you talk about that? What, what kind of created this fire bug? Well, a little bit of background, I guess when I was really young, this is how my mom said that 
later when I became a fire starter, she was like, I kind of knew you had a thing with fire. One time our whole family was doing fondue, fondue pot fell over or something. And basically there was a fire on the table. All the adults, I was like five or seven. <laughs> All the adults were sitting around screaming. I went over, filled up a bucket of water and poured it on the table and sat down like nothing happened. Now that doesn't have anything to do with how I got into prescribed fire, but my mom did bring that up later in life. She's like, you know, this makes sense. So I first learned about prescribed fire in college, talking about conservation and restoration and habitat management. I didn't think too much of it, although I thought it was pretty cool that the world needed to burn, uh, that that was healthy for it. Then I worked at Boyd Hill Nature Preserve in St. Petersburg, Florida, which is a very small preserve in a very urban area surrounded by kind of at-risk communities and that they're older and more smoke sensitive. So they, they barely get to do fire. But one day there was a fire when our, I was already out there doing land management and they grabbed me from the field, threw yellow on me, um, which is Nomex fire protective clothing, put a drip torch in my hand, which is filled with a mix of diesel and gas and it literally drips fire out, stays lit, you drip fire on the ground. Uh, and I had the best day of my life, <laughs> you know, they just, it's like they knew and they tried to get me into fire by letting me do anything and everything. Um, I got to work the hose, play with the trucks, light fire, put out fire. I got to do a little bit of everything and learned that, A, this is great for the ecosystem. They need this. They rely on this. This used to happen every one to three years, and now we have some catching up to do. Uh, it's great for the plants, for the animals. It's important for people. It's important for humans. The resources that we rely on from these forests, it actually helps water quality. And then the biggest one is probably wildfire risk. So when you burn down that fuel that accumulates when you don't burn, you do manage prescribed fires occasionally, keeps that fuel load down. Otherwise, you get an increase in fuel load. And by fuel, I mean anything that will burn. Twigs, shrubs, grass. That's what I mean when I talk about fuel. Otherwise, fuel load increases if you don't burn, and then you get a wildfire, and that wildfire is going to burn intensely. It's going to burn hot. It's going to burn fast and threaten people's homes, you know, their, their livelihoods, their cultures, their communities. Um, so basically, I learned that burning the woods is great for everyone, and not only is it great, you can get paid to do it. <laughs> I was like, why would you, why would I do anything else with my life? And I haven't done anything else with my life since I've been in fire ever since that day. All right. You said something there that triggered a question in my mind. Um, so I'm going a little bit out of order here, but you said fire can actually help water quality. How does that work? Yes. Can you explain that? Yeah. Fire minimizes the vegetation and exposes bare mineral soil. So, you know, clean slate, clean forest slate when it comes to the bottom of the forest floor, not the trees, the trees stay. And that helps. So there are less plants taking up water, less plants using water. More of that water gets into the water table. Okay. So more fresh water going into the water table. Got you. Okay. So you're talking like from also, a percolation level and, and it filtering into the soil. Right. Yep. Is that what we're so you get about? more, more water filtering in the soil. And secondly, kind of a less direct effect of prescribed fire. But when there's a high intensity wildfire and it damages that soil later layer on top, 
it can actually become hydrophobic, which means that it repels water. So if you've ever like had a house plant that you forgot to water for a really long time and you water it and the water just kind of sits there on top, it doesn't sink down immediately. So that's what happens after a high intensity wildfire. Uh, next rain event, water just kind of sits there on top and then it will flow down into the nearest water body, stream, river, lake, whatever. It'll flow all that sediment with it, all the recently burned material, which is gonna increase sedimentation of that water body and damage the plant life, the aquatic life, and it's a nutrient increase. And that can change the water functioning as well. Okay. Sorry. I didn't mean to put you on the spot with that. That was just an interesting little tidbit that I hadn't thought about. First question I want to ask is, are you a licensed fire person? Is that even a thing? Like, what is that? What does that mean? What is that? I know you're not here to talk about how to become a licensed fire person, but can you just kind of explain what that is and how it works? Yeah, sure. Um, So not everyone has to be certified to be on a burn. It depends on where you want to burn. So if you want to burn with the feds, uh, with a federal agency, you have to have a certain kind of clump of trainings. There's basically your introductory fire training. So it's an S-130, S-190, and there might be an L-180 in there also. Just numbers and letters, but three trainings that you need to take. But you can take those online. But for the feds, you have to do a field day component, which usually involves being on a fire. So you have to be on a fire take the classes and do a pack test. For the feds, you have to have the arduous level. There's two levels, moderate and arduous. Arduous is a 45 pound weight vest walk, three miles, you can't run in under 45 minutes. So those are the three things you need to go federal. And then it goes a little bit lower from there if you wanna work uh, for the state. For example, in the Georgia state parks, they have to do the classes and the field day, but they can take the moderate pack test, which is, I think, 25 pounds, two miles, 30 minutes. And then private entities, they kind of make their own rules for the most part. So I know one organization that only requires the classroom portion, only the S-130, S-190, and you can take it online. You don't have to have the field day. Um, If you burned with a private landowner, you don't necessarily have to have any of those trainings. You don't have to be certified to be on a burn. It just depends on who you're working for and who you're working with. But I have the arduous pack test, the classes and everything. And then to keep that certification, you have to recertify each year. You have to take the pack test every single year. You have to do, oh, a shelter training, a fire shelter training is a part of it, which is basically a kind of a little (laughs) sleeping bag canoe, (laughs) like a canoe shaped sleeping bag that goes over you in case of a burnover that protects you from the radiant heat of a fire. And you basically just have to practice that once a year and either participate in a classroom refresher section session or teach a fire academy. Holy crap. So, so wait a second. What's it called? A canoe test? (laughs) Oh, it's a pack test. A pack test. Uh, No, no. The the thing where you pull the the cocoon. The fire shelter. So do they give you guys these and you, and you just go out there and like, or is that something a fire person carries with them in case of a burnover, you called it? Yeah. So a fire shelter, everyone who works for the feds, probably everyone who works for the state and most independent contractors have fire shelters on them. And it 
in the package, it's just like a rectangular box. You keep it on your fire pack at all times and it, yeah, protects from radiant heat. So you kind of lay down on the ground, put it over you and it kind of tucks you in a little bit from the sides and fire can pass around you, over you if it's moving quickly, if you're in some grass and it's gonna move quickly over you. It's just an emergency situation. Okay. Um, and so we practice shelters that we use that are, you know, plastic and then we practice with those every year. Okay, cool. Let's get into fire and fire ecology. And the, the first question we want to ask there is e- ecologically, why is fire so important? This is a, that's a broad question for somebody like you. So I'm going to just throw it out there and you roll with it. Okay. Basically fire has been a part of our environment on earth since vegetation has evolved. Like since there was vegetation, something could burn there was fire. Fast forwarding a couple million, billion years in the Southeast, our ecosystems are adapted to fire about every one to three years. And that varies in pine savannas, you know, one to three years, sand hills, maybe two to five. In wetter areas, it might be a little bit longer, but for the most part, kind of generally speaking, fire passed through landscapes in the Southeast about every one to three years. What this creates and what evolved, like all the plants, animals evolved with this, you know, everyone evolved together. So now we have pine trees that are very tall with few branches. That's to protect from fire. There is a diverse understory, uh, like low to the ground, plants that are low to the ground. We have a high diversity understory because of that frequent fire. There are all these really interesting, unique plants that are adapted to that. About 80% of the diversity in a pine savanna is all in the understory. And we have minimal to no midstory. That's because that midstory is kind of wiped out by fire. Everything else that's coming back is either re-sprouting from a storage system underground that survives the fire and then re-sprouts or reseeding. You know, the seeds fall on the ground they survive fire. So they're all adapted for this. Um, We have a lot of specialist species that rely on this, not only plant-wise, as we kind of mentioned, but wildlife, gopher tortoises, red cockaded woodpeckers, turkeys, quail, everything's adapted to this. So what happens when there's fire suppression, when fire is removed from the ecosystem for a certain period of time, Hardwood starts to come in because this, a pine savanna is what we call a subclimax community, a subclimax ecosystem. So in the line of succession, if you just left it alone, although that's not exactly what would be natural, if it didn't burn, it would turn into something else. So a lot of people have this mindset of like, well, it's natural, right? You just let it be. It's like, well, letting it be would be, it would burn. Like before we fragmented, before there were roads, and structures to protect and firefighters to put out fires, it would burn. So if we don't let it burn, hardwoods start coming in and oaks start coming in. And then they have broad leaves. Oaks have broader leaves than you know, pine needles. Those leaves drop on the ground and leaf litter accumulates. That leaf litter suppresses the herbaceous vegetation. We have a lot of grasses, grasses, legumes, composites like um, plants in the sunflower family, all of those need sunlight. And once that hardwood litter starts falling on the ground, 
they become suppressed. Also, longleaf pines, their seeds need bare mineral soil in order to germinate. So if you have hardwood leaves all over the ground, they will not germinate. You will not get regeneration of that pine. Once that litter increases, there are other tools that people can use to kind of rejuvenate that understory and to keep the midstory from building up. People use, can roller chop the ground and that'll kind of help that understory or it'll, it'll suppress the midstory. You can use herbicide, but research has shown that it's not just the midstory that's the problem. It's not just the oaks growing up and over out shading. A lot of it is that leaf litter. So it's really important to get rid of that leaf litter on the ground. And also, you know, then once you have those oaks growing up, leaf litter on the ground, as I mentioned, that suppresses fire for some time because the, they have broad leaves that keeps moisture right there. Fire can't spread as easily. You don't have those continuous grasses that carry fire for long periods of time or uh, long distances. Fire is not going to get in that landscape for a while, but when it does, it's going to burn hot and it's going to burn fast and it's going to really damage the ecosystem. And that might kill the upper canopy trees. Whereas, you know, fire spreading through grasses, those upper canopy trees are going to be fine. They have thick bark to protect them from the fire. They're not damaged from fire, but if you have a high intensity, high severity fire, they could be killed. So, so you said something, you, you mentioned fire suppression. Um, why do we have fire suppression in this day and age? Like what drives fire suppression? Is it, is it just fear of fire? Is it like, can you talk about that a little bit? I didn't, I didn't give you that in the outline, but you mentioned it and I'm, I'm going there. So uh, the history is kind of, there were a lot of fires in 1910, uh, what's called the big blow up. And it made everyone really afraid of fire. Lots of people died, lots of communities were wiped out. And so at the time, people thought the best thing to do was put out all the fires. So they had the Forest Service created this campaign that was all fires out by 10 a.m. the next morning. So suppression, Suppression was incredibly active. That was their goal, was put out all the fires. And then, uh, as you can imagine, there was a lot of fuel buildup. And then when a fire burned, it was not containable. It was uh, not containable by humans. It would take a certain weather condition to put the fire out or it would run into a lake or a river or something. So then they thought, okay, well, maybe we should just let them burn. Then there were a couple places where they let a fire burn without any management and it got out of hand. So now we are in the age of fires going to happen. It is not a matter of if, it is a matter of when. We have a lot of structures to protect. So we need to put fire into landscape mindfully and that can be done through prescribed fire. It's called prescribed fire for a reason. You know, like we literally write a prescription there's planning that goes into it, weather parameters, fire breaks, they look at fuel conditions, and then that prescription is approved by uh, whichever forestry agency, whatever state you're in. It's sent to that forest agency and you call in a, um, for a permit. And then if your permit's authorized, you can burn. So that's one route. And that's mostly what we do here in the South. And it's going to have to increase in the West, although that's a totally different game. There's also managed fires. So if there's a lightning strike, a forest fire 
you know, not necessarily what we would call a wildfire. A wildfire is something that's out of control. There's a forest fire. We now have teams that can go in and be prepared to suppress the fire. But instead of just getting boots on the ground and putting a line around it, they're going to look at the landscape, fuel conditions, predicted weather, structures that are threatened, and they can actually let that fire burn for a long time and just continue to reassess. It's adaptive management. So every time there's like, you know, a trigger point, a weather event, or it gets to a certain place, they adapt and manage again. So that might've been a long-winded way, but suppression is important in a lot of senses because we need to protect structures. We need to protect people, their livelihoods, but we also really need a culture shift to get fire back into the hearts of people and back into their culture, that fire is a part of this landscape and we need fire and we don't need to be afraid of it. And I understand why people are. The media only shows us, not only, but I'd say mostly shows us the worst of it. You know, that's what's interesting. Yeah, um, exactly. If you, if you watch the news, what was it a couple of years ago, Tennessee was on fire, like around Dollywood and California seems like it's always on fire. Um, that's what you hear about is kind of the negatives of fire. And I know that for probably a lot of our listeners, we're talking to, to a number of folks that are in the sportsman's community, hunters, fishermen, et cetera. Um, you mentioned earlier, or I think you mentioned turkeys and gopher tortoises. You talk a little bit about, you can start with in any of the species, because I also want to ask about quail, deer. You talk about some of the impacts that prescribed fire or fire as a management tool uh, has on these, these species, obviously in a positive way. That's part of the reason we do it. All of these species that I mentioned before are, are called specialists. They need these open landscapes. Quail in particular need very short fire return intervals. So fire pretty much every year. If you know of a managed quail plantation, I will bet you 20 bucks that they burn every single year because quail want really open landscapes. They don't want shrubs. They don't want that mid-story. They want to be able to move quickly. Turkeys... Before, before you go to turkeys, I want to ask a question that I'm sure somebody's out there thinking right now. Don't the animals get burnt in the fire? I know that that sounds probably absurd, but that's got to be a concern that some people have, right? Like, like Absolutely. Yeah, that's huge. Um, that is a lot of people's first concern. We've definitely had people come up to us while we're uh, doing a prescribed burn and they're saying, oh my God, you're burning up the animals. What are you doing? But animals don't die in prescribed fires very often. Um, because they know what fire is. They smell smoke and they know to get away from that area. And we also light fires so that we don't box them in. The way that we burn is in a systematic way. I want to say a way that most people burn. There's a lot of different ways you can do a prescribed fire, you know, but uh, imagine you have the square unit, winds coming from one direction. We're going to work our way into the wind so that we don't light a fire that's going to race with the wind out of the unit. So we start on one side and we can systematically work, you know, starting in general, you could work about 60 feet at a time, lighting dots all the way across the unit and you're working into the wind. So you're giving animals, I don't know if that's a good visual, but you are giving animals all the time in the world to get out of there. You're not boxing them in. You are bringing fire with you. So they hear you. No, when you go hunting, you don't just walk out in the woods and just keep on walking until... Right. You see something, probably. You probably have to stay quiet. 
you're not being discreet. Right. We are not being discreet at all. We have radios. We're chomping through the woods. We're talking and, and fires crackling. And not to mention that these animals are adapted to fire. They know what it is. Their instincts kick in. You see lizards climbing up trees. Gopher tortoises are a keystone species in that they dig these burrows that hundreds of other species use. Some exclusively like invertebrates. There are some that rely on these burrows and they live in there their entire lives. And then some that use the burrows to escape from fire. So snakes, uh, indigo snakes, you'll find in there rattlesnakes, rabbits, anything like that. And something that's really interesting that some research showed was they put video cameras in gopher tortoises burrows. And when there's not a fire, if a snake is in a burrow and a rabbit runs in or a mouse, that mouse might have a problem. Um, During a fire, they have seen mice next to snakes and they're not going after them. It's almost like they're like, okay, we have a bigger problem here. Like their instincts are just triggered. They're wired to let's get away from this. Let's get out of the fire. So they'll go up trees. They'll get out of the unit. I, you know, we don't see many animals burned up at all. As a, as a sportsman, I know that too. Like I I know that to be true, but I think listening to an expert talk about it, like, I think that's a question a lot of people have when you talk about fears of fire is, well, wouldn't it burn up all the animals? And to your point, fire has been on the landscape for a bajillion years. It's not new. So these animals instinctively know how to cope with fire. That's, that's kind of what you're saying, right? Yeah. And also the way that if you light a fire at 60 feet apart, you're not going to trap any animals in there. Right. They have plenty of notice. So, so let's go back to animals for a second. Uh, you talked about quail. Can you talk about, well, you talked about gopher tortoises too. Um, turkeys are one because it's, it's coming into turkey season for folks in Florida. And this is a thing. Um, I know National Wild Turkey Federation has a, has a position on fire, their pro fire. Um, but this is one that's kind of got controversial in the sportsman's world because a lot of people are like, oh, you burn and you kill all the turkeys. And that's not true at all. In fact, burning is one of the best things you can do for turkey populations. Can, can you talk about that from, from a fire ecology standpoint? Sure. Turkeys are one of my favorite animals to talk about when it comes to fire because they love pyrodiversity. They like a very mosaic checkerboard landscape. And by that, I mean, on a landscape, you have one unit that burned three months ago next to a unit that burned a year ago, next to a unit that burned two years ago, next to a unit that burned three years ago, because they have the different needs throughout their reproductive and life stages. So when a turkey's nesting, they want to be able to see predators. They don't want too much dense midstory, but they will find a little tuft of midstory. But they but research has showed that they don't need a lot. And they don't want a lot. They'll find their little tuft of protection in a landscape that's burned fairly often. And that's where they will nest. Brooding habitat, they want vegetation that's about at least half a meter tall that covers their poults so that predators can't see them, see the babies, but less than one meter high so that the mama hen can see out and look for predators. So it's this very specific range. And then I'm talking about where research has seen most successfulness. So I'm sure that they do a little bit of everything, but the highest successfulness, this is what they've noticed. Turkeys also, you know, they eat insects when they're young. The poults need insects, very high protein. They're molting feathers constantly. A recently burned unit is heaven for them. 
especially right near roads, near um, an unburned unit next to a burned unit, because the insects are going to migrate in from that unburned unit into the burned unit, and they're more obvious. Also, you just burned up a bunch of bugs. <laughs> and not only did you immobilize them, they're sitting right there, they're sitting right there on the surface, so they can eat all those recently killed bugs. And then the bugs that are coming in from the outside, they're going to get those too. So that's just heaven for a baby turkey. They also need herbaceous growth. That fire is going to bring on a lot of fresh, green, highly nutritious foraging for them. And then having an unburned area next to a burned area also gives them a mode of escape. So the mama hen can look out, look for predators. If they see a predator, they can jump in there and kind of know where they're going. They also, of course, like some hard mast in the winter. Um, that's probably what they're going to rely on more. So they like a little bit of everything. They To be most successful, you have a, a diverse landscape with different fire return, well, different times since fire. Research shows that the farther a baby turkey has to travel, the less likely it is to survive. So the more that a manager can get all those resources as close together as possible, the more successful those turkeys are going to be. Yeah. And I'm going to, we'll come back to this at the end of our, of our interview, but you guys with Southern fire exchange have a podcast. Um, and I know that you guys have interviewed uh, Brett Collier and Mike Chamberlain and some of the Turkey experts out there, university of Georgia, LSU on kind of turkeys and fire. So that's, that's something I'll, I'll let you plug that again at the end, but I know that's something you guys have done um, a really good job on kind of changing that narrative because it's, it's critical for wild turkeys. Is, yeah, we interviewed Jay Cantrell and Dr. Michael Chamberlain. That's who it was. I'm sorry, Jay Cantrell. Yeah, and um, we have two episodes on wild turkeys and a fact sheet coming out. And then later we're going to have a synthesis. <laughs> it's a hot topic. Uh, uh, what other species are there that you, I mean, you mentioned indigo snakes. You mentioned, I, I don't know if you mentioned deer or not, but like fire impacts on those types of species as well. Because we're not just talking hunting and stuff. As, a, as an outdoorsman, one of the things I get tagged a lot is, People say, wow, you're more of a birder than you are anything else. I really am because I love watching wildlife. I love being outdoors. So can you talk about some of the other, you talked about uh, rattlesnakes and stuff, but indigos, uh, deer, any of the other species that you see like that fire have impacts on? Mm -hmm. Indigo snakes, uh, they need fire. They need those open landscapes. Pine snakes also are specialists. But one interesting practice or research that's come out that's kind of new to me at least is the importance of stumps. Fire leaves snags sometimes, snags fall over, you have stumps. A practice that we used to do more is chainsaw and cutting down stumps, but leaving those stumps is actually great snake habitat and bat habitat, but snakes love getting up in those stumps. So that's something we've been trying to do um, because stumps can be a smoke management issue. If they catch fire, they burn for a long time, but now we can kind of use a council rake, a fire rake and rake around those stumps and protect them. You have more habitat. Red cockaded woodpeckers will pretty much only be in these open, usually old growth stands because they are the only woodpecker to build a cavity in a live tree. So they usually find a tree that has what's called heart rot, which is a fungus that kind of destroys them, not destroys, but it weakens the center of the tree. So that tree is still alive for a long time with that heart rot and the red cockaded woodpecker will use that tree but they need open landscapes. They're specialists also. And they like, there's different spatial scales of burn units. 
you know, I mentioned turkeys. They like smaller scale burn units because they got everything close together. Red cockaded woodpeckers, new research. So we're not positive on this, but there's evidence that they like larger scale landscapes. So I do want to emphasize pyrodiversity, having diversity of time since fire, spatial scale, heterogeneity within the unit too. You know, when you burn a land, a unit doesn't have to be complete, completely black. That is hard for new burners. <laughs> we want it all burned. But having that heterogeneity is a great opportunity for a lot of species. Explain that to me. Um, for a new burner, you want to go burn everything. But yeah. you really don't want to burn everything. Is that is that what you're saying? Or is like there's a I'm sure there's a lot of nuance yeah. to this when you're looking at a property or whatever, but can you kind of give us a broad explanation of that? Yeah, and I'll speak from personal experience. When I first come into fire, uh, usually the newer people are the one who are doing the ignition, you know, relatively newer. You have burn bosses who are managing outside the unit or um, you know, on the fire line. Your crew is going interior and lighting those dot fires that I talked about, you know, um, strategically moving into the wind. It's really tempting to want to put dots in so that you end up getting, you put fire down so that you end up getting the entire unit black, the entire unit burned. But that might not be what's best ecologically speaking. It's good to have some areas of unburned vegetation because that can act as a seed source to um, reseeders. It's also a little haven for bugs. Those bugs are gonna you know, expand outward and you especially want the edges of your unit to be black so that you have a safe, secure unit. Fire is not gonna creep back out there. But this slogan that one of my, there's this fire pixie in Georgia, her name's Shan Kamek and she's a great burner. And her tagline is, Pyrodiversity enkindles biodiversity. So really the more diverse fire you have on the landscape, the more diverse, you know, the more biodiversity you're going to get. Gotcha. Okay. So tell me about, you work for Southern Fire Exchange. Yes. Tell me, tell me about SFE. They are a fire science delivery program for the Southeast. They are part of the Fire Science Exchange Network. There are 15 regions divided up in the U.S., that are funded by the Joint Fire Science Program. So we are the Southeastern region of that program. Our two main purposes is to take the fire science research that's out there, that is in scientific journals and articles that are written in a language that is not meant for the non-scientists. And there's so much, there's so much out there. We want to synthesize that information. We know practitioners, land managers are really busy. So we want to synthesize that information and get it out to people in an easily understood, easily accessible format. So we have webinars, the new podcast that you mentioned, fact sheets that we produce, research syntheses. We put together a Southeastern-centric fire science database we also, one of our other goals is to work with land managers and researchers to get the questions from the managers, people who are actually putting the fire on the ground, what do they need to know and get that to the researchers. So our biggest goal is to connect these two groups, help the managers get the science they need, help the researchers get their information out. We do this through learn and burns, 
<laughs> we assist with learn and burns, which uh, get private landowners some training on fire in the field and teach them about prescribed fire. We've assisted on fire academies with that training I mentioned at the beginning to get new burners out into the world. Prescribed fire council meetings. Um, so prescribed fire councils are fire professionals and any interested party. They come together and talk prescribed fire every year, the new science, new practices. We present at conferences, fire festivals. We presented at the Women in Fire Training, training Exchange last year, talking about how people can get the resources that they need. And we also do workshops. We've had a Duff workshop, which is the, I don't know if we talked about Duff yet. We haven't. And I was going to bring it up after you, after you said it, because that's one of the funniest words in America and like, (laughs) it should be used in everything. I think. So tell people what Duff is. Duff is the partially decomposed matter in the soil horizon. So when pine trees, any vegetation drop, leaves or vegetative material to the ground, it decomposes, it becomes a part of the soil. In the South, we have a long wet season. So things grow quickly and have a lot more vegetative buildup. So there's a lot of litter dropped on the ground. The way that that litter would typically be kind of um, shaved off the surface as some of it gets decomposed, because otherwise like decomposition doesn't work that quickly to where all of that is decomposed to soil in a year. Right. (laughs) So those frequent one every three years prescribed fire would kind of slowly chip away that layer. And you wouldn't have what we call duff because in that partially decomposed layer, that's still flammable. And that layer usually builds up around older trees because they've been dropping a lot of leaf matter onto the ground. You'll see kind of like a little mound around an old tree that has a lot of duff. And if fire gets in there, it can kill that tree really easily. And it kills that tree by burning up the fine roots that are near the surface. Because that's a lot of nutrients for that tree. So it grows roots into the duff layer. And then that fire will creep around underground. It's called a ground fire. It'll creep around in there and kill those fine roots, which causes a cascading effect and can kill that tree and you won't even know for a year or so because the top looks fine but it's dead from the ground under and then, so yeah, really, then one day it's dead yeah um and there's really nothing you can do about it after it gets after the fire takes out too many of those roots so in order to kind of deal with that problem if there's a unit that has a lot of fire suppression a lot of duff we wait until it's really wet So there's just a little bit of dry layer on top, but the rest of the soil layers are wet and you can burn just a little bit of layer off and those roots will be fine. And then year by year, you can slowly burn that duff away. And that might take 20 years to get that down to a time where you're not really concerned about your fire weather and killing those trees. But it's usually old trees that you really want to protect. Okay, Mary, now how can someone learn more about Southern Fire Exchange and or burning as a tool in wildlife management or land management? The fire, the Southern Fire Exchange website is a really great tool. That's southernfireexchange.org. There are archived webinars, trainings, the fire science database. You can sign up for our mailing list. We only send out about three emails a month. One of my favorite tools, and I'm biased because I help put this together, 
is the Firelines newsletter where we synthesize, we send this out every two months. So we basically synthesize everything that's happened in the world of prescribed fire and fire science and management that's happened in the past two months, put this together into a newsletter and send that out. It also includes events that are coming up, resources, recently recorded webinars, tools. So we have a lot of weather tools, fuel program, um, a lot of models, all of that's on our website, but we also feature new ones in that newsletter every couple months. And if you use social media, I suggest checking out the Southern Fire Exchange Facebook page and our Twitter account. Because we try to send out a little bit, at least once a day, put out an announcement for a webinar or a little research summary and make it in a, a summarized way that you can kind of access really quickly. Yeah. Something. So you, you also have shared some of your stuff, not noisily, but once a week, once every two weeks to our cast and blast Florida group and where we've got some firebugs out there. Is that, is that kosher to call you guys firebugs? Because that's really sure. what you all are. Um, but we have some fire junkies out there, but something I've noticed you guys do a really good job with is infographics. Like you seem to put data and in, in science into a more visual format, which makes it easier for someone like me to digest. Cause I'm not really that smart. I'm, faking it most of the time. Uh, the other thing that I noticed that you guys do is um, you also, I don't know if you mentioned this or not, but you'll also link to ancillary stuff. Like you did a, you did a link a few weeks back. I noticed in the newsletter to uh, a webinar on the American chestnut that had nothing to do with fire, but it had to do with, with something kind of adjacent to fire. So I, I've noticed that you also are good at keeping people in the loop on that kind of stuff too. So it's a really, it's a really cool resource in the world of wildlife management. Thank you. Yeah, we try to send out anything we think would be of interest to our target audience. So is Southern Fire Exchange, it's a nonprofit. Is it a thing people can join? Is there an action that people can take out of this? Or is this just really a a spread the word, fire's not bad, keep 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 burning stuff in the right way and following the science? Like, like what's the what's kind of the action step people could take? If you have land burn it. <laughs> Learn about how to burn it best. There is a good way and a bad way. Um, so if you have timber land or hunting land, um, I suggest educating yourself on prescribed fire and see if that fits into your landscape. For someone who doesn't have 100 acres of land to burn, the best thing you can do, I think, is to become educated on the importance of prescribed fire and help build it as a part of our culture especially in the South. This was always a part of our culture. We were burning. Um, you know, there's a lot of people with stories of their grandparents lighting a match at the middle of the night, dropping it on their field, and they just kind of watched it burn. Having fire in our culture and changing the language instead of talking about only you can prevent forest fires, only you can prevent wildfires, and changing that tone. Fire is good and a lot of capacity it's necessary it's going to happen and we can be a part of making it a beneficial part of the landscape instead of it being a damaging part mary now thank you so much for all the work that you're doing good luck on your masters and hopefully we'll hear more from you uh in the future on fire thank you so much thanks for having me on the show 
huge thank you to Mary Nell Armstrong for giving her uh, so much of her time to talk about all things fire. Make sure you guys check out the Friends of Fire podcast. Make sure you go follow them on Southern Fire Exchange. Sign up for the newsletter. I really enjoy it. I'm not a fire guy. I don't have land to burn. But as a sportsman, as a conservationist, as an outdoorsman, I felt like it was an important thing to learn more about. And I've really enjoyed that newsletter about as much as any other newsletter I'm getting. Like it's it's one that I look forward to. As she mentioned kind of in the podcast, they're not too noisy with it or anything else. So it feels like it comes at the right frequency and I scroll through it and there's always something I click on in it. So please sign up for that. Check out their podcast. Go follow them on Facebook, Southern Fire Exchange, or check them out, southernfireexchange.org. Hope everybody has a great week and we will see y'all next week.